Well, good morning, LCM. Good morning. This year is going to be looked upon in the future as one of the most productive periods of growth in our history. We've taken bolder steps to minister to each other and the world around us than ever before. We're experiencing greater trials and greater victories than ever before. We're maturing more rapidly than ever before. Is that good news? We're producing the finest ministers that this world has seen in a very long time. Participation in this community of believers is the greatest joy and highest aim that I have ever set my sights on in Christ. If I died today, and what a joy that would be, what you've already become has surpassed my wildest ambitions. I genuinely believe that you are the hope of all that will be accomplished in distant places and in future generations. I think the seeds of revival are in this room ready to be planted. Which is exactly why I'm going to challenge you today. It's also why I'm not going to give an inch to the standard defenses of those that are trapped in their carnal nature today. When the thought comes to you that uh, I don't think Eric likes me or that's just the way that Eric is or do you really have to be so serious all of the time? Make no mistake, I do love you. It's not just the way that I am. It's actually the way that Jesus is. And by the way, yes, you do have to be this serious Amen. all of the time. If you don't, if you don't take the subject we're talking about today as seriously as I present it, history tells me that you'll surely fall away in your own self-deception. You won't even know that it's happening. Paul put this into words better than I ever could, so we'll just do that. It's Colossians 1.28. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature, perfect, fully mature, perfect in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend, or you could say vigorously fight, struggle, and labor with all the energy of Christ which works powerfully in me. Anything less than fully mature in every area is something that we must go to war with. Anything less than perfect in Christ is something that we must take with all seriousness. I will strenuously contend and vigorously fight, even struggle and labor for you to have this kind of awakening. And the reason that I will is because I know what it is to have the energy of Christ at work within me to do so. I want you to know that I first do this with myself, and then I do it with you. And by the way, I gave you fair warning Thursday. If this is not what you want, I said plainly, don't come here. You endangered your, yourself when you walked through the door. Hey, this year, 
began with a special kind of recognition. Y'all awake, by the way? We covered this slide in January. You came to the recognition that you already have what you need. We covered things like you are a son of God. You are a co-heir. You are seated in the heavenly realms. If that's not mind-blowingly deep, then you're not thinking very much. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You are full in Christ, like lack nothing. You are clothed with Christ. You are a participator in the divine nature. You are strengthened with all power. You are the ambassador of God. You're the dwelling place of God. Let that settle on your soul for a minute. You are a holy and royal priest. You are God's inheritance. Now, like all things, you have some familiarity with these. That's because you didn't discover them and put them in a list and put them on your mirror in the 90s when you were so crushed that you couldn't figure out who you were in Christ. Didn't really form your identity. It was just handed to you. So you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, the gates again, the mirror statements again. The problem that we face is not that we don't have the things we need. It's rather that you are literally possessed by many things that you don't need. We are in truth sons of God. But we are also very much sons of men. Living in the tension between these two truths is a sobering experience. Particularly if you don't discount either truth. You can expect this tension to engender both internal and external criticism. If you live in this tension, you will have to war with your own thoughts, much less the voice of the critics. On the one hand, we are fleshly, and sin is somewhat expected. And on the other hand, we are of divine birth, and sin is to be executed. We've been credited with righteousness. And now we have to fully set our hopes on actually becoming righteous in our daily actions. When we admit that we are but sons of men, some will say that we don't have proper faith and amount to nothing more than hypocrites. Of course, when we announce that we are sons of God, some will say that we suffer from hubris. And our actions don't warrant such a statement. In other words, either way, we are liars and hypocrites. The answer to these criticisms is ongoing transformation. Progress in putting to death what does not belong to Christ. But how can we make progress if we can't even identify the specific areas of your own carnal nature as it appeared in your daily life this week. When you can't face your own grotesque sin in specific terms and in current actions, 
but you prefer to place its description in the past or neatly covered by generalizations? We're all just sinners. How can it be said that you are making progress? I believe that we must have the courage to announce both the reality that we are sons of God and the truth that we are sons of men. This allows us to execute the nature that is passing away and exonerate us through the ongoing transformation into what we are already called and credited with, sons of God. So do you have the courage to do more than merely acknowledge these truths? Can you live in the agonizing tension of both realities? Can you come to terms with the truth that sin presently lives in you and is warring against your high calling in Christ? Can you boldly and clearly identify your specific sinful actions on a weekly, daily, and hourly basis? Wow. Did you notice how there was not a single person in this room that said, yes! Are you so self-deceived that you find comfort in just acknowledging, oh, yeah, I'm a sinner? Like, back in the day, I used to really have problems. I, I, I know we all sin now. Do you find comfort in that? As if you don't have to have a weekly, daily, and hourly reckoning with your present sinful behavior right now? Hmm. A person that is aware of the holiness of God is in constant tension over their own unholiness. And yet, they're confident in the ongoing transformation. I can't help but notice how encouraging we want to be in prophecies. It's as if the most assured group of people on the entire planet that were given 66 books of a Bible, that were given 12 gates that are right there, that literally your life is lined with affirmation. You know what you actually need? You just need more affirmation. You're like homeschool kids. Everybody tells you you're wonderful all the time, and you actually believe it. There are so many reasons that most of you cannot easily identify a list of your sinful failures this week. Perhaps the top of the list is that you don't examine your activities in the light of the holiness displayed in God's word. I mean, you read the word, you're encouraged by the word, but you don't measure yourself against the holiness displayed in the word. Instead, most of you actually believe that the issues that you have in your life relate to the circumstances that you're in and the people that you're having to interact with. You believe that your wife made you angry. You believe that your husband is frustrating you. But even if you were in a garden paradise and without interaction with your spouse, you would still have a wicked, sinful nature that must be transformed. How can you be in Christ so long and purport that you know him so well 
and still not evaluate your actions against his holiness with immediacy and without deflection. You made me angry. Or you are just a putrid sinner and are prone to get angry whether I was here or not. When the commands of God come alive inside of you, when you become more than a childhood church brat, which we have many of in here. It's all you generational Christians. Taught that it's all already been accomplished in Christ. When you're actually alive in the word in a personal way, and the word is alive to you in a personal way, then you can begin to identify with Paul's statement in Romans. I put it on a slide for you. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? Hell no. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, hear it, sin might become Utterly sinful. The ESV says sin might become sinful beyond measurement. The Amplified says sin or the immeasurable sinfulness of sin might plainly appear. Become sinful beyond measure to whom? Your spouse? No. It's a revelation that you have of your own state, not of somebody else's. The immeasurable sinfulness of sin might plainly appear to whom? So many ways this church is so mature. This is one that you are not mature in. And? The more upset you get with me for saying that, you will only prove my point. And there is no worse group in this church than those of you that grew up in Christian families. You've been assured for generations of how wonderful you are in Christ so that you've never seen yourself as actually depraved. We heard an amazing sermon on Thursday. It's titled, The Red Dragon, Tacos and a Snake. Sounds very much like a sushi restaurant in Texas. <laughs> Pastors Wade and Judah gave us amazing things to contemplate. Here's one of the things that I've been examining. I, I put it on a slide for you. Genesis 3 identified the enemy as a garden snake to be crushed. Revelation 12, the end of the book, identified the same enemy as an enormous Red dragon. So how did the garden snake turn into an enormous red dragon that holds most of the world under its dominance? Well, there's a hint in the center of that slide. I want to reflect on the first generation in Genesis 4. Genesis 4, 6 says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? 
Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires, it lusts to have you. But you must rule over it. Notice that Cain was alerted that sin was crouching at his door. It was lurking beneath the surface. Even though he was told, he didn't see it. He didn't deal with it. The look on his face was proof enough that it was there. But Cain was blind to what was killing him. He preferred to kill his brother rather than face his own evil nature. Good thing that's died out. Yeah, yeah, the real problem here is Abel. Sure it is, Cain. This kind of deflection blinds you to the cure of your actual problem. And more than that, it allows the garden snake to grow into an enormous red dragon. How different would this story be if Cain fell on his face, recognizing that his own evil nature was the true problem and cried out, Father, change me. Christian, I have to ask you, when will you learn to see your own sin as exceedingly sinful? When will you develop the maturity to identify your own specific areas of sin in your own daily activities? The ones that are killing your marriage. Is he talking? Of course I'm talking about you. Who else would I be talking to? No, 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 we're doing okay. The hell you are. Look at the fruit of your marriage. That is killing your parenting. That has stifled your high calling in Christ. How long can you show the frown of Cain and your state be obvious to everyone but you? You know, if we were betting people, if we were Las Vegas people, we could take odds on what your disposition will be before you walk through the door. And 80 or 90% of the time, I'll be right, even though I don't know what's going on in your life. You earned that reputation. Some of you we know will be happy. Some of you we know are perpetually miserable. And we're surprised if you show any level of joy. And we run over to affirm it. Like, oh! baby made a, a boo-boo. You ought to be insulted if people have to compliment you that you're joyful. You also should be insulted if nobody ever is. Because you're not. Our pastors taught us a more complete understanding of Romans 16, 20. Man, did I love this from Thursday night. I put it on a slide. I can't say tacos enough. The God of peace will soon, tacos, crush, man, I like that, Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. That empowerment over sin be with you. 
course, tacos meant hurriedly, swiftly, speedily, quickly. Sounds like Brenton driving. As we engage with this, the God who is the author of shalom, right order and harmony with God and man, will hurriedly, swiftly, speedily, quickly crush Satan under your feet. Man, that's good news. But how can this occur if you can't put your finger, much less your foot, on the specific areas of sin that are causing your own failures on a weekly, daily an hourly basis. See, it's just a pipe dream for you. It's a pipe dream for you because you don't even know where to put your foot. Man, you're going to have to learn to identify your own sin with immediacy. Somebody say immediacy. immediacy. And in the moment, ask him to transform you so that it is being crushed under your foot. Tacos. Quickly. We're not waiting for the eschatalon, the telios of all things. We're actually waiting for you to wake up and realize what is biting you. And then he can quickly crush it under your foot. Otherwise, you are providing the time, the concealment, the nurturing environment for that Garden snake to grow into an enormous red dragon, and you don't even know that he's gaining dominion over you. Because after all, I've been credited with righteousness. I'm a good little generational church brat. I've been told how much God loves me so much that I actually believe no matter what I'm doing or how I'm living or whether I can evaluate my own life. Oh, it's all just he loves me. Yeah, well, what about his holiness and his hatred of your sinful nature? What about your pledge to put it to death and your constant excusing of it because you uh, got saved? Church, I know you guys. You certainly know me. It's not that you're unwilling to have tacos, that quickness, that swiftness. To be perfectly honest with you, it's that so many of you are deceived about where your true problems originate from. Carlos gave me a, many good words. I really enjoyed fellowship with that brother. Turns out that interacting with people that love the Lord as much as you do actually is convicting and encouraging all at the same time. Amen. He, he gave me a picture. I mean, it's a deeply spiritual picture. And I wanted to share it with you. Before you start talking, woman, remember when I need your opinion, I'll ask. Hey, husbands, is your wife truly the problem? Are you just insecure as a leader? And you make bad decisions because you can't face your own specific sinful fears and failings. The woman's not the problem in this picture. The idiot is cutting off the branch that supports this ladder. I want to support you, man. I really do. I want to stand with you in the right order of shalom. And sometimes you are just dumb. I mean, it's hard to hide it as a pastor. She won't follow me. And I'm sitting there thinking, there's no way I'd follow you either. And the reason is that you're not coming to grips with 
the fact that you are vacillating all over the place, that you're hiding your own fear and cowardice to lead. You have no idea where you're going and expect her to follow you because you don't know the Lord nearly as well as you think you do, and you're scared to death, she'll figure it out. Yeah, good morning. <laughs> do you truly trust that Adonai will help her to follow you? Do you really believe that God himself is her Lord too? Or do you just vacillate all over the place as a faithless coward? I'll be mean. No, I'll buy roses. I, I will freeze her out. No, I'll, I'll do the dishes. Pansy. How about you just stand for God's will and be certain of what it is, joyfully immovable? Oh, yeah, it's a good word. It's a good word. I don't do it, but it's a good word. It's a good word, Pastor Eric. I, 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 yeah, yeah, because it's easier to say it than do it. Some of you who yelled amen are vacillating all over the place in your walk. It shows in your life. It shows in your wife's life. Yeah, it's going to be a long Sunday. <laughs> who should I be preaching to? Should I run down to the Methodist church? You want me to go find some Lutherans? See, I'm, I'm contending for you because I actually believe that you're becoming something. If you haven't noticed, I love all of the kids in the church, but I don't pay a lot of attention to them until they can talk, you know? And the older they get, the more complex and developed they are, the more I engage with them. Amen, Sydney? Yeah. Because as they're starting to be able to grasp some of the fundamentals of life, I, I feel the need to get in there and shape it because there's now an actual human being here. Well, me talking to you this way means that I believe Christ is actually beginning to be formed in you in a, in a way that's worth talking about the actual direction. Or I could just, you know, give you a little peanut butter cup and a nap and you can learn your primary colors in Christ forever. Which is what you were doing before you got here. Oh, there you go, Michael. Hey, that's kind of funny, isn't it? Well, I wanted to catch another side of the coin, and we have a video for you. It's just, there's all this pressure, you know? And sometimes it feels like it's right up on me, and I can just feel it, like literally feel it in my head, and it's relentless. And I don't know if it's gonna stop. I mean, that's the thing that scares me the most is that I don't know if it's ever gonna stop. Yeah. Well, you do have a nail in your head. It is not about the nail. Are you sure? Because, I mean, I'll bet if we got that out of there. Stop trying to fix it. No, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just pointing out that maybe the nail is causing- You always do this. You always try to fix things when what I really need is for you to just listen. No, see, I don't think that is what you need. I think what you need is to get the nail See, you're out. not even listening now. Okay, fine. I will listen. Fine. It's just... Sometimes it's like there's this achy... I don't know what it is. And I'm not sleeping very well at all. And all my sweaters are snagged. I mean, all of them. That sounds really hard. It is. Thank you.
Ow! Oh, come on. Ow. If you would just... Don't! Try to see things my way. Ladies, is your husband really just not sensitive enough? Does he really never protect you? Is he really not loving? Does he really not listen to you at all? Or are you just avoiding having to deal with your fear and faithlessness? And he's the scapegoat for your continually miserable disposition. Been nailed by sin. It's sticking you in the heart and in the mind. Don't address that. Don't address that. It's my sweaters. It's that I have nothing to wear. It's that I don't have the right kind of shoes. It's that you didn't listen enough. You didn't talk enough. You didn't... Are you sure? I want to take a moment and address a truth that exists in all of us. This is an excerpt from Charles Spurgeon, and it, it hit me this week like a ton of bricks. See, I was preparing for our weekly team unity meeting, and I couldn't articulate, much less formulate my thoughts regarding the state of my heart that week. Truthfully, it was in many ways a great week in the Stevens home. The week was full of discipling and pastoring my family, and each of them responded to godly instruction really well. But then again, the Mashlomka portion of our team unity meetings it's not about the circumstances and how everyone else is doing in our home. I can't tell you how many of you do that wrong. Even at the elder and pastoral level in the church, it's really pretty bad. Tell us your mushlomka. Well, my wife's really bit. <laughs> okay. The mushlomka portion of our unity meeting is solely about the examination of our own heart and actions before God. So I'm wrestling with that because I got to go do this, right? I read these words and realized that I had present sinful deception in my own heart. <gasps> and I hate that I had to have it pointed out by somebody who hasn't stood on the earth since 1850. This is what slayed me. I've changed a few words to modernize it so that we don't lose the youth. Beware of light thoughts of sin. At the time of conversion, the conscience is so tender that we are afraid of the slightest sin. Young converts have a holy timidity, a godly fear lest they should offend against God. But alas, very soon the fine bloom upon these first ripe fruits is removed by rough handling of the surrounding world. The sensitive plant of young piety turns into a willow tree in the afterlife, too pliant, too easily yielding. It is sadly true that even a Christian may grow by degrees callous, that the sin once that once startled him does not alarm him now in the least. By degrees, men get familiar with their sin. The ear in which the cannon has been booming will not notice slight sounds. At first, a little sin startles us, but we soon say, eh, is it not a little one? Then there comes another, larger, and then another, until by degrees we begin to regard sin as just a little thing. 
And then we follow with another unholy presumption. We think to ourselves, we've not fallen into open sin. I mean, it's true we tripped up a little, but we stood upright for the most part. Yes, we may have uttered that one unholy word. But as for the most of our conversation, I mean, it was, it was good, wholesome. So we begin to accommodate sin. We throw a cloak over it. We call it by dainty names like failings, weaknesses. Christian, beware of how lightly you think of sin. Take heed lest you begin to fall little by little. Can any sin be a little thing? Is it not a poison? Who knows its deadliness? Can sin be a little thing? Do not little foxes spoil the grapes? Does not the tiny coral insect build a rock which can wreck navy ships? Do not little strokes fell lofty oaks? Will not continual droppings wear away a stone? Can sin be a mere little thing? It girded the Redeemer's head with thorns and pierced his heart. It made him suffer anguish, bitterness, and woe. If you would weigh your heart's smallest sin in the scales of eternity, you would fly from it as a serpent and abhor the least appearance of evil. Look upon all sin as that which caused the crucifixion of the Savior, and you will see sin as exceedingly sinful. See, church, what I appraised as a victorious week, okay, like, I'm thinking about my ma Shlomka. I got a good word for somebody. <sighs> it's a pretty victorious week. It's a good week. It was really rife with sin. And I had not even identified it. It didn't make a dent. I didn't notice it until. So I want to describe that for you. I thought at most I was just a little discouraged. I mean at most, just a smidge. By what I would like to describe as the weight of responsibility. You know, kind of heavy as the head that wears the crown and all that. Of course, when you put it like that, it almost sounds noble. Have you noticed that most of your own thoughts about yourself do sound noble to you? Yeah. I had uh, strongly corrected a pastor about his ineffectual leadership with his wife. And uh, to top it off, another pastor in another church um, about his parenting. Uh, I actually told him it was a total failure. Uh, then to cap that off, I correct a disciple about the inappropriateness of his presentation. And I did all three of these publicly and uh, within 24 hours of each other. I thought that, you know, I was just troubled or catch this word, suffering from minor despair over having to do it, over the need to do it. But when I prayed and contemplated the book of Jude, Jude, I realized that I was faithless. It was faithlessness and was obvious sin because the real issue was I did not trust that God is able to keep those brothers from stumbling and present them before his glorious presence. I actually was not suffering as a victim of anything. I was the offender against God because of my faithlessness. Now, don't misunderstand me. 
not the corrections. Those were God. The feelings that I thought were justified after the corrections had to be given. The truth is that all three men received the life-giving rebuke with dignity and graciousness. I was the only one that was faithless about it. And that was in the aftermath, not during. And I needed to confess and repent. But wait, there's more. I even spent time wishing that I had fewer responsibilities and longed for what I would have described as those simpler times. Of course, this too was grotesque sin because it's actually the expression of ungratefulness for the position that Adonai in his mercy has allowed me to serve him in. But wait, there's more. I thought that there were a few slanted comments from men who witnessed the rebukes, maybe even a smirk or a cutting of the eyes or two. In my carnal mind, I was just dealing with the difficulties of being perceived as harsh. I mean, it's no big deal. Yeah, it's hard, but... Of course, the truth is that I was re all I was really doing was exposing my own sinful love of self. I actually love my reputation. I, I actually want you to think highly of me. The real resentment came from loving my own reputation more than I value obedience to Christ. Which is why I was sitting there lamenting having to be useful to Christ. But wait, there's more. I would have described myself as just a little weary from the rigors of ministry, you know? Probably just need to kick back for a while. But of course, the truth is this, that I despised the agony of travailing over whether or not my actions were just me or were actually God prompting me. Was I expressing my own thoughts in those corrections or was it genuinely God? I was tired of that wrestling match. This is laziness that does not want to have to work out my own salvation with fear and trembling on a daily basis. I simply want it in a neat category of safe so I can move on. Now would be a really good time for you to have a revelation about the experience that I'm relating to you. The three men that I confronted about their sin all received and applied life-giving instruction with honor and humility. They were absolutely fine. I was the one who was not fine. They confronted the condition of their own hearts and went on building the kingdom. I was unaware of the condition that my heart had become. After doing something righteous, I immediately sunk into sinfulness and didn't know it. Never underestimate your own ability to excuse, justify, or be deceived about your own state. In fact, I'm quite sure that even as we're sitting here, you started to think about a list, then you thought that many of those things were not that serious, and, and you're pretty well trying to engage, but you can probably just ride this one out. You've been doing that a long time, which is why your life looks the way that it does. If the Lord had not confronted the sinful state of my own heart, I would have moved forward believing that everything was fine and that any distress I was feeling was directly attributable to those loved brothers who needed to be corrected. Like anything I'm feeling is not going, it's just because of that event. It's astounding that within moments of being used by the Lord to achieve his will on earth, I became deceived about the source of my own discomfort. What would happen if I didn't deal with that? 
How long would it be before my own sinful condition was causing me to misread everyone else's intentions around me? How long would it be before my list of people that had caused me to feel this way grew in number? How long would it be before I was steeped in sin, deceived about it, and equally sure the problem was mostly with everybody else around me? I love that it's quiet in here. I'm telling you the truth about me. This was, this was Friday morning's experience. In fact, Carlos came over a couple hours after I'm getting this, and I told him about it right away. I don't want this to happen to us. Are you beginning to understand why your own discernment is lacking? Yes. I'm not going to call you ugly names, but I will say that if you are not yet starting to understand what I'm saying, it's because sin has made you dense. Not P-H-A-T fat, not thick like a good thing. Like you're just a little stupid from sin. You want to get smarter, want to get more discerning? You need to start repenting personally and not in a real general way. I I guarantee you if you just have enough self-evaluation to go back through this last week, you have plenty to repent from. And the very fact that that's difficult for you to do and you have to kind of like... Oh, sometimes I'm kind of, even our navel traits. I love that we have navel traits. That was to get you into the ballpark. I'm talking specific actions. Let me introduce you to a life-saving principle that I'm going to call the plank principle. We're 41 minutes in, and I have no idea how long I'll keep you, but if you have the courage to get up and walk out, I will have the courage to call your name. The plank principle. Matthew 7, 3. Why do you look at the speck, somebody say speck, of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank, somebody say plank, in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? The plank principle is that a man will never have more insight or discernment into the life of another than he has into his own life. You will never see more clearly into somebody else's life than your own life. Ever. It's impossible. The plank in your eye is a plank because it's your eye. It might actually be a speck. But to you, if it's in your eye, it's a plank. It prevents you from seeing others rightly. Now, we've relegated this this very verse to, oh, don't be a hypocrite. Don't be stupid. That's not all this means. This means you cannot rightly discern your spouse your children, your co-workers, while you are standing with self-deception because you haven't identified your own sin. It's why you get so much wrong. And then you're hurt, offended, depressed when it's pointed out that it's wrong. We don't praise your misguided actions and continue to affirm them. Then like a homeschool kid, your whole world is shattered. You'll never be able to rightly assess any situation without first dealing with your own personal level of depravity. If you you don't feel like you're depraved, you don't know yourself. You've been told you're a son of God, a son of God, a son of God, and you've not come to grips with the fact that you're also a son of man. It's only when you remove your carnal thinking that you can operate in the mind of Christ to discern anything. Which is why so many in here operate in the mind of Christ so very little. I mean, you can talk about it. You can quote the scriptures. You can point to moments where as a church we did. 
But you personally, very, very rarely are you ever in the mind of Christ. This is demonstrable all over the word. I'm not going to go through Matthew 16 that records Peter getting a revelation that causes the gates of hell to tremble. And then in the very next moment becomes a mouthpiece for Satan. How did that happen? He slipped into sin and didn't even know he was in sin. So he had a loving friend that looked him right in the face and called him Satan. Not Jesus. Jesus. Sweet little Jesus. If you're to mature in Christ, you must learn to hunt for and eliminate sin in your own life. On a weekly, daily, hourly basis. Or you will definitely become self-deceived and fall away from his grace. Can't have power over sin if you can't identify your sin. Independent of your spouse, independent of your children, independent of your job. Hey man, what's your muscle on command? My job this week. Dance. The thing about deception is that you, uh, you may not even know that it's occurred. It's a little bit like drunkenness. I'm not drunk. I drive fine. <laughs> it's because you're drunk you think that. When you're sober, you don't drive fine, much less now. This is why so many of you struggle with near-fatal levels in your marriages. Literally have not gone six months of genuine, godly, joyful happiness since the first six months you're married. In this room, I could call names, but I'm pretty sure that everybody in the room is already tabulating names. Probably also excused your sis, yourself from the list. It's also why so many of your parenting resembles the highs and lows of a roller coaster. It's why you struggle to establish, maintain, and prosper in meaningful relationship with others. You don't know yourself well enough to know that you're a problem in every situation. It's not the other person. <laughs> Two people in the room. Yeah. <laughs> hey, it's okay. You don't have to like it. You will have to endure it. I mean, you, you'll have to finish this with me. I'm... It's not a problem. I'm going out of town Wednesday morning. If you don't like it, there's other handsome, amazing pastors. I, it's okay. I warned you before you came today. I'm going to fully deliver the word that I believe God gave me. Hey, so moms, if you worry that others will not love your children as you do. Anybody ever feel like that? Yeah. Anybody ever feel like that? It's probably because you don't love others' children as you do your own. See, you're projecting your issue onto other people. Say, no, 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 I love everybody's kids. Then why is it that you're so worried somebody else will not love yours as you do? You're deceived by your own sin. Husbands, if you worry that your wife will not follow your direction, it's probably because you're weak and insecure about whether or not you are following the direction of your groom, Jesus. Have I called you men cowards enough? I'm trying to piss you off. There's nothing manly about blaming your wife for the condition of your household constantly. And I agree. Many of your wives are real problems. But the issue originated in your sinful state, not theirs. Amen. So, no, no, they got their own sinful nature. Yeah, buddy, you married it. It's your job to pastor it. 
I'm absolutely sure that this room is riddled with people that have misdiagnosed their own problems, and the only right answer is to tacos, to swiftly examine your own sinful state so that Satan can speedily be crushed under your feet. See, because that is the hope, is that when you get the actual revelation that you can then turn on it and God will crush it under your feet. Let's agree as a community that we're not going to have any more mashlomka examinations that center on the actions or activities of another human being. Still, in our next leaders meeting, you'll be like, oh, we didn't know. Maybe you should write that down. We are not going to have mashlomka meetings that focus on the actions or activities of anybody other than you. I think I'm bringing a buzzer to the next meeting. Hey, brother, how's your shalom? Well, the thing is, my kids were sick and my wife... <laughs> Failure, sinner, coward, weakling, anything else I could do to slap you and get your attention. When Matt and I were kids, we'd go... Gay! The point is not how proper my speech is or is not. It's like, what would it take? How many, how many ways could you be slapped in the face before you go, okay, so maybe there is an issue in here? I want to tell you that the place to start is with your own sinful heart, that the plank principle will work and you will be able to see clearly into the ways that you can benefit the kingdom when you get the plank out of your own eye. We should also watch that Jack Russell Terrier video one more time. I think it's important. I've never wanted to be God's dog, D-A-W-G, more than I do right now. <laughs> Hearing that master, that owner of the dog, laugh and be joyful over taco killing that snake will forever be imprinted upon my soul. If you're hearing anything that I'm saying this morning, then you'll know that that yard that the snake was in is your own heart. And it is not the issue of someone else. It's you. I pray to God that you will circle your problem. For some of you, you've been doing it for decades, unable to identify where it's at and scared it's going to strike you. You will circle your problem only for as long as it takes for you to identify what it actually is and then kill it. Oh, I, 
I'll try. That's not tacos. Would you like to get into the message for today? Today our message is titled, Look at it! In the early 90s, I had a dear friend who was getting married to a beautiful girl named Sarah. They were a dynamic ministry couple, and I was delighted to be the best man in their wedding. The groom was a truly powerful worship leader, and the the bride-to-be, Sarah, was in med school with the hopes of international evangelism. The goal was to use her medical degree to open doors for other countries to preach the gospel. Somebody say, that's good. A few days before the wedding, the groomsmen and I were felling trees and doing manual labor necessary for an elaborate location wedding at a southern antebellum mansion. During the preparations, I was laughing and cutting up just like I always have with guys on work sites. Anybody been on a work site with me? Yeah. And while that was going on, uh, I handled a large gas-powered hedge trimming device that is really a chainsaw turned sideways, carelessly. I tripped over something, and that power tool cut deeply into my lower calf. The wound was uh, considerable. We wrapped a towel around it and uh, duct taped it, had a little electrical tape in there, and headed for the hospital where I was clearly going to need many internal and external sutures. Along the way, we were, uh, we're young charismatics, we're in fervent prayer, you know, I mean, it sounds like uh, Indians circling a wagon. And I, I, I wanted to see if uh, perhaps God would heal this gaping, bloody mass of mutilated skin, muscle, and ligament that literally went all the way to the bone. So we pulled over the car on the side of the highway, and uh, you know, I'm like, we're going to pray. And Sarah, actually, Sarah reminds me a little bit of Sam, now that I think about it. So you have to picture Sam's spiritual stature, but that, that frame, you know. Uh, she was reticent. I think she's feeling somewhat responsible because she's the one with all the medical training. As we got out of the car, I, I, uh, I unwrapped the conglomeration of bloody towels and, and duct tape, uh, a construction site, uh, battlefield wound care. I placed my leg on the hood of the car, kind of excited, and asked everybody to lay hands directly on the gaping wound. It was awkward because it really did look like a battlefield injury, and uh, several of the guys kind of shied away. And uh, I called out to Sarah, the med student, and she, she came closer. And uh, I said, hey, Sarah, stop looking away. Prepare yourself. Could be that the Lord's going to do a miracle. The most insightful and beautiful lesson ensued from that event. Uh, as we began to pray, Sarah, she stretched forth her hand. She directly looked into that mass of bloody, mutilated flesh. And then she promptly fainted and fell into the roadway. <laughs> Two things became very, very clear in that moment. Would you all like to know what they are? Yeah. First, even the most spiritual and charismatics, uh, spiritual love charismatics, they, they need medical intervention occasionally. Uh, 
I didn't believe that before that moment, uh, but I, I've known it ever since then. Secondly, I knew for sure Sarah could never be a doctor. Now, you know me, I didn't tell you that story to be funny. If you can't bear to look at an affliction, how can you ever be a part of the cure for the affliction? Some of you have been living in willful self-denial of your own state. For so You can't bear to look at your own state. You get mad at anybody who points it out. Nobody should have to point it out. You should be staring at it. I would quote physician, heal thyself, except it's not really the context. Let's turn to the book of Numbers. We're 56 minutes in, and this is starting to be fun. Numbers 21, beginning in verse 1. Arad destroyed is something like your pericope should say. Are y'all there? When the Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming along the road to Atharim, he attacked the Israelites and captured some of them. I never like to pick up in a passage without giving you some of the context. So you should know that Arad was an important Canaanite city. It's about 20 miles north, uh, east-northeast of the biblical city of Beersheba. Israel had already failed to cross the Jordan. They had not gone into the promised land. You remember that from Numbers 13. So this is occurring near the end of their 40 years in the desert as they approach the promised land for time number two, like the duo or do-over. The Canaanite king is most likely seeing their route as a threat to his own security. And he attacks them and he captures some of them. This be the perfect opportunity for Israel to become intimidated because they've suffered loss. Just like they were intimidated earlier. But they don't. They rather their faith and they go on to victory. Verse 2. Then Israel made this vow to the Lord. If you will deliver these people into our hands, we will totally destroy their cities. The Lord listened to Israel's plea and gave the Canaanites over to them. They completely destroyed them and their towns, so the place was named Hormah. The vow of the Israelites before God was to destroy the Canaanite towns. But the word destroy there is haram. In Hebrew, this means literally to totally destroy the towns themselves as an act of devotion or tribute. It's not just wipe out the cities. It's devote everything there to you, Lord. Meaning that they would take nothing from those towns. They're not asking to go to war so that they would benefit from it. They're saying that whatever the result of it is will totally belong to the Lord. Meaning not one item afterwards could be in their hands. Think the battle of Jericho. That's actually the same words and same passages. They even named the town Hormah, where they took their vow of Haram because the word's clearly related, and it's a generational reminder that victory comes when you want nothing but what the Lord wants and want to keep nothing for yourself. That's why the town's named that. 
But what I really want to talk to is verse 4. I just wanted you to see the victorious setting that they've just come out of. The incredible generational monument that they've just come out of. It's almost like you when you got saved as an eight-year-old or a teenager or whatever. If that's even true. But at some point in your life, you kind of slid into the kingdom. I mean, there has been a genuine affection for the Lord, and he has done some things in your life. You had a victory at Arath. Hey, let's look at verse 4. They traveled from Mount Hor, that's an interesting name, along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. How often do we as Christians forget yesterday's victories because we're so impatient today? Some of the supposed strongest believers in this room are rarely satisfied in their walk. They always feel as if they're not doing enough. They even say so. Probably sounds noble in their own ears. But the truth is, is that they're simply unfaithful to recount all that the Lord has so graciously done in their lives. I would recommend that we all stop listening or tolerating this kind of behavior. It really is thinly veiled contempt for the life that Adonai has gifted you with. It sounds so I just don't feel like I'm doing it. Well, shut up. Because you're actually expressing your contempt for the life that God has given you. And we can't pour enough encouragement into you to get you to quit doing it. So I'm going to stop encouraging it instead. Just call it out as sin. It also leads to selfish ambition and a multitude of errors. You're always trying to hit it out of the park so that you can recognize that you have done something for the Lord. It's really a sad path. By the way, while we're on that subject, some of you who are perpetually dissatisfied in your marriage should be falling on your knees every day and praising God that there was somebody willing to marry you. I was there. It was miraculous. Your dissatisfaction is an offense to the miracle that God caused when somebody wanted to marry you. How long can you act that way before you offend the spirit of grace that caused your union? In Israel's impatience and ingratitude, they do something even worse. They open their mouth. Verse 5, they spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread. There's no water. And we detest this miserable food. Notice that the indictment is against God and against Moses. This is without the slightest reflection on why they are still in the desert. They were in the desert because of their own unfaithfulness. And they were blinded to that fact. They are blaming others while they are presently increasing in their unfaithfulness. The Lord has just delivered them from Arad. But they now accuse God of wanting to kill them. They've survived for nearly 40 years in the desert with every need met. Nevertheless, they claim that they don't have any kind of food they want to eat. Before you dismiss this as, how could they do that? I want you to know that I can testify against you. That I've heard many of the same kind of expressions of discontentment with what God has done in your lives come out of your mouths. Some of you do it with frequency. The last statement 
is probably the most painful. We detest this miserable food. I mean, I would understand that if it was okra. But what food would this be? Manna. It's right. Manna. It seems that the manna, which was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey, according to Numbers 16.31, had become ordinary and common to them. This in spite of the fact that Psalm 78 calls it the grain of heaven and the bread and food of angels. Before you dismiss this as a, how could they do that? I want you to know that I can testify against you that I have heard the life-saving marriage enrichment teachings given to us through the word of God and the spirit described with the same level of contempt. Those of you blind to the cause of your condition, which is your sinfulness, actually show contempt for the teachings of God and you think that they're not edifying and won't work for you solely because you're steeped in sin and pride and you don't properly apply them. Call us when the patient's already dead and we go back and tell you you've had the cure the whole time and you've got to go dig it out of your attic. You, you didn't take it seriously the previous five times you were taught it and you're not going to this time. You actually are deceived enough to think that it will not work for you because you're just not godly enough to try. Most of you in this position will experience the very same thing with your parenting. Our parenting teaching, if you don't adhere to it, if you don't recognize that it comes from the Word of God and that it is the teaching of the church that God put you in, then you will see behaviors manifest in your children as they get older. You're insulated from it now because they're itty-bitty and you don't notice it. If you don't make the correction now, your fruit will be evident, evident to everyone but you, and it really won't matter how much you blame me or the other godly pastors. You continue to ignore the garden snakes in your little children, and they will grow up as enormous red dragons within your children. And one day you'll go, well, we're, they're going to stand for the Lord or not. But you'll know that it was really your blindness, your stubbornness, your rebellion that would not engage with the actual teachings of your church and the word of God because you think you know better. So what happens next in this passage will be encountered uh, by many of you as, I mean, you, you'll think of it as Adonai's punishing them. But the truth is, it's an extraordinary act of grace. It could never be rightly seen as a punishment. And if you read it that way, you're, you're wrong. Here's verse 6. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people. Sounds like a punishment, except it's not. And many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Had the Lord uh, not sent these visible snakes among the people, they never recognized that they were trapped in their own sins of faithlessness and ungratefulness. The same leaders that were being slandered were now being solicited for prayer. 
Think about it. The people are still in the desert. The people still have none of the kind of food they desired. The circumstances have not been bettered in any way. So why are the people recognizing a need and requesting prayer from the very leaders they slandered? It's because they could see the snakes. Whereas before they could not detect their own sinful nature because they were deceived about their state. As we get into uh, the gracious prescription for this, uh, for the plague, the plague is now visible on the people, but it was preeminently present prior to the arrival of the snakes. See, they were already being devoured by sin. They were just not aware they were being devoured by sin. You might want to do some soul searching. One hour, eight minutes, you've probably hit that flat spot about now. You get to decide whether you're going to be flat for another decade or whether this is your day to change. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. A version of this appears all over the world in the medical field it's called the caduceus if it's intertwined with two snakes and the asclepius if it's a singular snake. You see it literally on any medical bulletin board around the world. Even pagan Gentile cultures understood this is a sign of healing. So how about your true healing? You're going to have to look at your own sinful nature. Not in general. In specificity. What's the first thing that you ask when somebody says they're bitten by a snake? First thing you ask. Where did it bite you and what kind of snake was it? They will strip you, ask Mike Hutchinson. They'll strip you naked and throw you on an emergency room table. You're bitten by something poisoning, poisonous. They will search every area of your body, whether you want them to or not, until they find it. So if you actually believe that your sinful nature is poisonous like a snake bite, why can you not point to where you were bitten? Well, there's snakes in general. We all kind of deal with snakes. Yes, but this one is killing you. Where is it biting you? How is it manifesting and why? How are you going to put your foot on it? How are you going to say, tacos, Lord? Yeah, Judah and Ray said tacos, tacos. I love tacos. <laughs> Let's do it. If you don't even know where you're being bitten. Or you think you know where you're bitten. But you're wrong. You have to identify and look at what has been killing you. It's not your spouse. It's not your children. It's not your job. It's not your pastors. You have to look at your own sinful nature as the cause of your condition. That's the place to start. And if you faint, it's, <laughs> or if you simply won't, or if you can't, then you will die in your sin and never truly experience healing and the abundant life that Jesus came to lead us into. You say, but I'm saved. They crossed the Red Sea. They followed the fire. They were baptized into the cloud and drank from Christ. I'll let you work that out. But usually it's a generational church brat that thinks like that. Could it be, saints, that you're snake bitten and don't even know it? I tell you what, if gratefulness, fruitfulness, and graciousness are not the defining features of your life, then I bet you've been bitten by the snake of your own sinful nature and it's poisoning 
No matter how small, it's coursing through your veins. And Paul could see it on the Galatians' face. And week in and week out, we see it on the same faces in here. <laughs> you have to look at it. If you want to live, you have to look into the cause of what's happening. It's not your circumstances. Because you've been miserable for a long time, no matter what your circumstances were. The alternative is to continue to deflect from the real issue, project your problems onto others, and you'll end up killing your marriage, ruining your children, and shipwrecking your call. And I can list the number of people that love the Lord every bit as much as you in this room that have done exactly that through these last few decades of ministry. Let's go to verse 9. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by the snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Look at the clear and overwhelming grace in God's word. Anyone, say anyone, anyone. who was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake lived. Man, do you want to live? Then you're going to have to look. At your own snake-bitten nature in every area. Don't you want to know if you've been bitten on the foot or on the face? Do you want to know whether you were bitten in a place that you didn't see? If any one of them will put you to death, then you better find them all. The wages of sin is death. Whether you admit to it or not. But if you can't admit it to yourself and look at it deeply, how will you ever be able to ask Adonai to transform your life? Transform how? Transform what? I learned so much of that class. Good. Tell me what you learned. Oh, no. Well, keep telling yourself that. Oh, man, that message was so edifying. What was lacking in you that needed to be strengthened? Uh, uh, oh, no. See, not being able to do this means that you can't define any progress in your life. So I don't need to justify it to anybody. Keep telling yourself that. Every tree is known by its fruit. Not going to go into the well-trodden path of explaining all the ways that this is imagery of the cross. I'm not going to explain that 2 Corinthians 5.21 says God made him who had no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I'm not going uh, to tell you that when you consider his sinlessness and his crucifixion, your sin becomes exceedingly sinful and plain before you. I'm not going to do that because you're generational Christians, American Christians. I mean, after all, you did all this so long ago. There's probably no need to revisit those basic subjects all over again. I mean, you're a masterful teacher of the word, right? All of you are so saved, so secure, so confident that you don't need to go back and examine those basic principles again. So I won't talk to you about that. I will, however, remind you that Hebrew 3 uh, it does teach us that not all those that came out of Egypt entered the promised land. I will remind you that 
1 Corinthians 10 does say that they were all baptized into Moses, into the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drink, and uh, they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. That rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Well, good thing it was just them, right? Those bad people. Yeah, the chosen ones. Those people that, that God didn't love nearly as much as he loves you. Your mama told you so since you were eight. God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Yeah, but that doesn't mean they weren't saved. It's funny how people that grow up in church cannot come to the most obvious conclusions because of what it would mean about them. Since I'm not going to teach about the crucifixion because you are generational Christians and you experienced all that a long, long time ago, let me tell you that I believe the real problem is, especially for church brats among us, we all grow up so assured of God's greasy grace that we learn to sweetly smile while we sit in sin and rebellion and self-deception. You've been taught to say all the right things. The bronze snake on a pole re-enters the scriptural record in the reign of Hezekiah. That's seven or eight hundred years after this event. So it disappears after this, and we have seven or eight hundred years. I'm just going to read you one verse. Okay, We're running short on time, but I am going to take all the time that I feel like is necessary. 2 Kings 18.4, he removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. Notice that what was once uh, a life-saving experience, what was once a... At eight, I went to the cross and my whole life changed. Is now in a list of idolatrous things. I mean, engage with this list. High places, sacred stones, Asherah poles are all in the same list with the amazing grace-filled objects of Numbers 21. What? The object that the medical field calls Asclepius is now just an idol in the lives of the people of God. How does that happen? It happens when an event in the ancient past that required you to look at the symbol of your sin and God's grace has become nothing more than an ancient event in your life. Every time you are bitten by the snake of your sinful nature, you are required to look at it. Look it in the face. Face your depravity of your condition subsequent to salvation. And ask for God's grace to heal you and transform you. Hey, Protestant, do we have any Roman Catholics in here this morning? Okay, we got one former. It's disappointing. Because I'm, I'm about to slap all of the rest of you in the face, and I usually do that to the Catholic. I would like you all to see it. Hey, Protestant. Your childhood salvation story may be something that you are just burning incense to. And your faith might be as worthless as a Catholic's crucifix. I've loved the Lord all my life. Really? It didn't show.
I don't want our children to run off and become whores and tax collectors, but at least they know when they've gotten saved. I have a really hard time with many of the testimonies in this room, and most of them are from sweet little girls. I've just always loved the Lord. Really? Because it, it really doesn't show. You're happy. You're pretty, and that's nice. But when obedience is required, it's really just not there. That's when we see a whole other nature come out in you. Are you sure that you have decades in the faith? Oh, you were frozen in a cryo tube. That's what happened. Life was given like a Petri dish. A zygote was formed, and then it was frozen. And we're, we're just waiting for that really genuine experience to unthaw somewhere in your life now, decades later. Jesus was speaking to his own followers when he said something. This is Luke 9, 23. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Take up their cross daily. How often? Daily. How often? Daily. Daily. And follow me. Not when you were eight, not when you were 20, not in the 90s, not yesterday. Daily. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life will for me, we'll save it. To be crucified with Christ is not a one-time event for us. It is looking at your specific sins with immediacy and dying to it as it is identified. Not as a one-time act. Perpetually. Have you become less specific about your sins since the day you got saved? You can't be doing this. If you are having three-day fights with your spouse and you're out of shalom, you cannot be daily taking up your cross. We recently reviewed a rule like, I think if we've been out of shalom for 24 hours, we should announce it to our teammates. I was dumbfounded. I thought that had always been the rule. Oh, I was the only one doing that. How can you be going to the cross daily and be out of shalom with your wife, wife for more than a day. I'm glad nobody took me up on that. You can't. So do you feel yourself then a lost, depraved sinner in the moment? Of course you don't. You think it's your spouse's fault. You can't be doing this and be miserable for years. You can't be doing this and believe that others are the source of your frustration and problems. When you have the courage of that Jack Russell Terrier... To attack your own sin in the garden of your own heart. You'll live. You'll live. And God will heal you. And your situation. But it has to be done with tacos. It has to be done with speed. It has to be done with immediacy. The idea that you're okay. Because you've been a Christian a long time. Is actually more of an indictment. Than it should be an encouragement. Every second that you wake. Will turn the garden snake into an enormous red dragon. Do you remember this slide? If you've had a repetitive sin in your life, and I'm not talking about porn, you're an idiot and you should probably have been at the altar before I started preaching. I'm talking about an area where you regularly do not do what God requires. I'm not talking about doing something that you shouldn't do. I'm talking about not doing the things that you do. If, if, 
if that has been going on for some time, tell me that you're not nursing a garden snake into a giant red dragon. If you conceal it, if you haven't come fully clean with it and torn your clothes at the altar and enumerated it to God and asked him to transform you and to the people that are discipling you and pastoring you, then aren't you concealing it? Well, that, that, that will only cause that garden snake to grow into an enormous red dragon. And do you nurture it? Do, do you like, it's really not that bad. I mean, everybody's got some issues. I mean, I really think it's mostly John Dang's fault. You're nurturing it. You're growing what could have been an inchworm into a world-dominant dragon. Except I'm not talking about the world out there. I'm talking about your whole world. Look, if I had to fight Goliath, and what boy doesn't grow up thinking about that? Can I tell you how I'd do it? Before he could walk. I'd kill him while he was a toddler. Why give an enemy the time to grow in concealment and shadows until he's nurtured into full-blown strength? Time is now, church. I realize that many of you have already been concealing a garden snake, and it has already become an enormous red dragon, and that's discouraging. It's, it's like, well, I didn't know, now I know, and, and I just can't. That's also what makes the story of David and Goliath my favorite. David was small and insignificant, but his God wasn't. Goliath was an enormous and imposing enemy. But when you have faith to look the monstrous enemy that is your sinful nature in the face and run towards it with tacos, Adam and I will give you the victory. The only reason you're not getting well, we've just struggled with this for a long time, then you're not looking at it. You're excusing it. You're misdiagnosing it, but you're not looking at it. If you stare into the face of what is biting you, God will heal it. Numbers says so. Many of you are relatively good little boys and girls, and I've been picking on you. I've been calling you church brats. That was very intentional. You grew up with constant assurance of your salvation and completely unwarranted opinions of the depth of your Christian walk. You've never said a profane word, never been into a bar, never been seen as sinful, wicked, and depraved. And that really is your biggest issue. Not that you need to go to a bar or say a profane word, but you've never seen yourself as sinful, wicked, and depraved. You're not used to coming to grips with the current state of your heart. You're not used to having to put to death and see monstrous sin. In fact, you hide your monstrous sin behind deceptive church language and sweet little smiles. For you, I want to remind you of the testimony of Nicodemus. It comes from John 3.10. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. Let me paraphrase that for you. You grew up as a Christian, and you don't understand what I'm talking about this morning? Verse 11. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we've seen. But still, 
you people do not accept our testimony. Let me paraphrase that for you. I'm telling you what I know to be true and what your actions demonstrate. Will you not have the courage to face the truth of what I'm testifying to you about? Verse 12, I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Guys, it took Nicodemus months to begin to understand that he was snake-bitten. Jesus is calling him to account, telling him he is snake-bitten right here. The man had the passage memorized, but he didn't know his own condition. I do want to say that Nicodemus did start to love Jesus, though. And you see him later in the Gospel of John starting to stand up for Jesus. Is it right to condemn a man without a, without a trial? Shut up. You're steeped in sin just like him. That's what they told him. He started to stand up for Jesus because he started to understand his condition. But when he saw Jesus lifted up and he realized the perfectness of that man, then he understood his own condition. See, what does it mean to take up your cross daily? What does it mean to visit the foot of the cross daily? You need to compare your nature against his and not in general terms, but in very specific ways. This will keep you from excusing garden snakes that then turn into dragons. And the power of God will help you look at both what is your condemnation and what is in your salvation all in the same paradox. It's how we rightly deal with the two natures I've been talking to you about all morning. Of course, Nicodemus carved out a place for Jesus. He and, Ara and Joseph of Arimathea put him in a tomb. That's because Nicodemus was able to carve away the stones from his own heart. But it took him months. I'm sure you'll get it done really quickly and move on and go back to life as normal. I've contended with you today for an hour and a half because I believe God is contending with you. It took me all the 15 minutes to put the sermon together in my mind, some hours to write it out because I was careful to choose my words. And then I didn't sleep for the next five or six hours wrestling. I would much rather just tell you you're a champion. I don't like that about myself, but I want you to like me. And at the same time, I invite you not to regularly. It's a strange paradox. I'm contending with you about this because I believe you can become something and this is the only way that you will. If you're harboring deceptions that keep you from examining your sinful soil and your life keeps producing discontentment, discontentment with your calling, discontentment with your children, discontentment with your spouse, you have a sin problem. I was as deceived about it as you are. Friday morning. And the scariest thing in the world is that I could have went on and thought I was just fine. And all the while, everything's being skewed and I don't even realize it's happening. It's not a small thing. There's no such thing as a small sin. Drop a poison, it'll still kill you. 
As certain as I am that there is sin in this room, I am equally certain. Somebody say equally. Equally. That if we will look at our specific area, he will heal it. That's why this whole event is in the word. Peyton, if you don't mind coming here, don't turn there. We can put it on a screen for you because we are at the absolute maximum close. Even I should not preach this long. I'd like you to hear Numbers 21, 16. This, uh, this is in the ESV. And from there, they continued to beer. That is the well of which the Lord said to Moses, gather the people together so that I may give them water. They had a battle in a rod, a Canaanite town. They won it. Then they realized they're being snake bitten and they have to be healed. And the snake biting was actually just their grumbling and terrible sinful nature that they didn't even know they had. And then they go into the next place, which is Moab, where they're encountering more enemies. And what they didn't know was God had led them on a journey from release from sin in Egypt and bondage and was taking them to the promised land. And Beersheba is the place of the well of the covenant. They weren't there yet. It wasn't completed. They were just on the journey. And the grumbling and unidentified sin in them was going to keep them from getting there. In fact, it did keep some of them from getting there. But. 17, then Israel sang this song, spring up, O well, sing to it, sing to the well of your salvation, the well that the princes made, they made it, they made it every time they dug into their sinful nature. They made it every time they removed away something of the earth so that something of heaven have come forth that the nobles of the people dug do you mean it's only those with noble and pure hearts that work the soil of their hearts with the scepter and with their staffs you mean that your godly kingly calling your walk your staff is supposed to cause you to dig the well, you dig it with your calling. And then you sing to what's coming out of it. Salvation. I want to promise you something. I have a higher hope and estimation for your life than you do. I, I can absolutely assure you that. The reason that you talk to a church this way is because you believe there is potential to become what you're talking about. If we were preaching to a different group, I don't have any problem just saying, yeah, go read John 3.16. The Lord loves you. Perhaps it'll happen for you. But not to you. You're some of the finest, most energetic, talented, gifted people. There's only one thing that's killing you your own self-deception about your state. And when you can get that right, you'll start to see clearly everybody, everywhere. With tacos, with speed, with swiftness, you should run to this altar.
with tacos, with speed, with swiftness, you should look your sin in the face. With tacos, with speed, with swiftness, you should look to the only cure for your condition. With tacos, with speed, with swiftness, you should use the nobility of the scepter and staff that you were given to reopen the well of your covenant. Father, we as a community come and bow before you. Lord, we sang earlier Hosanna and we sang it as a praise, but it actually means save us. We need you to save us again. Lord, we need to understand what is eating us. We go on and we get along and we act like it's okay, but we have the same repetitive issues and we're blind to it. Lord, by your presence, by your holiness, by the spirit that brings the world into conviction of sin, bring us into conviction over our own specific sin. Lord, we're being snake bitten and we want to turn and look at it so you can heal it. Come and deal with your church, Lord. Refine us here. Refine us now, Hosanna.